Amen. If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love to be a part of a Vine Kids time <clears throat> happening right out that back door or out this side door. You can follow these lovely ladies. If you have a middle school age kid, fifth, sixth, seventh-ish, eighth-ish in that range, our middle school guys and girls are meeting out, uh, out back. We'd love to have you be a part of that um, as well. If you are here for the first time, I want to tell you again and remind you how grateful we are to have you with us this morning. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. If you're visiting this holiday weekend, friends or family, we are honored and glad that you are here and that you are here with people uh, that matter to us. And so in proxy, you matter to us and we are, are honored that you are here. Uh, we're in this journey through the Gospel of John. Um, you are catching us at the right time, week 58 of this sort of movement, line by line, word by word, through this journey that has taken us through some of the most incredible stories in all of Scripture, because John is focused really differently, uh, his gospel is focused really differently than the other gospels. John is not telling a history of the life of Christ. John wants us to know that Jesus is in fact God. And so everything in John's gospel is built around the idea of proclaiming and demonstrating the deity of Christ. And so we see these incredible stories and miracles and everything that John does <clears throat> points us to his deity. And we've made it in these 58 weeks to the last few moments or minutes or maybe even hours of, li of Jesus' life. In chapter 14, several weeks ago, we began this movement into what scholars have called the farewell discourse, which is this lengthy piece of text from 14 to the end of 17, and where, in which Jesus almost in an uninterrupted fashion teaches in this incredibly lengthy time, explaining to the di disciples in some of the clearest and most profound language about what's getting ready to unfold over the next few days um, that we see in all of Scripture. And so it's almost as if Jesus is readying them for his departure. And we know the disciples are really hung here. If we remember the, the weeks that we've been in this little discourse, we've made it all the way to chapter 15, we've seen Jesus telling them plainly that he's leaving. And the place that he's going to, they cannot come. And we've seen the disciples really hung up on this. I mean, they'd spent the past three years following Jesus around the entire Judean countryside. Every moment with him, every day with him, every hour with him, and now he is telling them that he is leaving and they cannot follow him because the place that he is going, they cannot yet come. And we saw question after question from Philip to Peter to Thomas. They all were trying to ask Jesus why. And the more Jesus explained to them, the more they just didn't understand how all these puzzle pieces kind of fit together and they didn't grasp even though Jesus was saying it incredibly plainly that he was returning to the father to prepare a place for them and that they could not come yet because they still don't grasp that this road leads to Jesus death even though he had just proclaimed at the last supper that Judas the one that he was dipping his hand in the bowl with was the one that was going to betray him Judas gets up and even leaves to set the wheels of Jesus betrayal and death and crucifixion in motion and so they're just missing so much of what Jesus is saying because they're hung on the idea of why are you leaving? So they've gone through all this teaching and they come to the place that last week where Carson left us off where it says that they got up and they left the upper room. They had spent this previous time in that upper room where they had had the last Passover meal they would have together where Jesus had told them about the bread of the cup where he had washed their feet where Judas had set those moments of devotion into moments of betrayal all those things have unfolded in that room and they got up and they left and they made their way or are making their way 
to the Mount of Olives. And as they're walking, Jesus is teaching, and this next few moments are going to lead us to this crowd of people that are going to ultimately come and arrest Jesus. All of his disciples are going to flee, and Jesus is going to be walked to the high priest's house where he'll be accused, where he'll be beaten, where he'll be tried and crucified. Uh, and we know how those stories go from there. Well, we are right in the middle of that text. They've got up and they've left the upper room. And in chapter 15, Jesus begins to teach them plainly, giving them words of deep comfort that actually shed some identity into our community, which is what I'm excited to talk about this morning. So all that to say, we're going to be in John chapter 15, 1 through 8. And uh, we're going to read it first, and then I'll kind of tell you how we're going to go there and, and what we're going to do this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John 15, 1 through 8. Now I want you to imagine Jesus' disciples having left the upper room and walking towards the Mount of Olives, which I had the privilege of kind of doing this past um, uh, few months ago in March, being able to see where that upper room would have been and where the Mount of Olives was and watching this sort of thing unfold is, is really cool. And at some point in time, I'd love to show some pictures and talk about that experience in the Holy Land. But for now, I just want you to understand that it's, it's not that long of a journey, leaving the upper room, walking out to the Mount of Olives where they could gaze upon the city of Israel, where they would be left in the open as this angry, mobbed kind of crowd with torches and clubs come to arrest Jesus. They're on that journey to make it to the garden. So let's take a moment and let's pray, and then we're going to work through John 15 this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word that is full of life. <clears throat> God, we know that this word of yours is breathed by you. It is your very breath. Lord, the Bible is not some book that we have that's called to uh, kind of inspire our life or serve as some kind of guidebook or motivation. No, Lord, it is your very breath. It is access to your heart. That we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, Lord, we do not take it lightly. Lord, your word is living and it is active and it is true. And so I pray this morning that through your Holy Spirit you would teach our hearts. Take a moment in your own heart this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you. Whatever you need to hear, whatever he wants to whisper to your heart, give the Lord reign over your heart and ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment, and as we do each week, pray for that person beside you. We want to be a church that is in love with the idea of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them. Maybe it's your husband, your wife, a friend, a coworker. Maybe you don't even know their name. Just pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts through your word this morning, that you would make this come alive in our hearts. Teach us Jesus. In your holy and risen name we pray. Amen. So the end of 14, we get these three or four little words where it says, come now and let us leave. So Jesus is giving instructions that they're going to be leaving the upper room, walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will have this intimate encounter with a few of his disciples, asking them, to pray for him, where we see that very passionate plea where Jesus falls down, he begins to pray for the disciples, praying that if there's any other way, the Lord would remove this cup. All of that is going to unfold the next 30 minutes or the next hour in terms of chronological history. But this morning, we're going to see them walking on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is going to continue to teach them. And this is what he says in 15, and we're going to go down through verse 8 this morning. 
I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can't do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So I want you to hear that text before I explain kind of my thought process and how I want to approach it this morning, because I want it to be resting in your mind. Because as you can probably tell, this text is close to our heart, it's close to our identity as a community, because it was a, a very formulaic text for us as we were in the early days praying and thinking about the church that we were planning and who we wanted to be. This text played a very important role. Obviously, you can tell that we even derived our name from it. And so I want to explain that to you and why this text works that way and kind of give you some pictures into our community in terms of what this really looks like here and why this is so important. And so we're going to look at this text from that lens this morning, from the lens of our community and what it means for you and I as followers of Christ. And so I want you to just sort of have that backdrop because all the time, or I guess say not all the time, but many times over the past five or so years, I have told you that I have this sort of not-so-secret heartbeat for our community. And I, I've actually told this many times, so it's sort of part of our DNA now, but if you were to ask me what my deep desire is for us as a church, it's really wrapped up in three small ideas, right? They're simply this, that we would be authentic, that we would love much, and that we would love well. From the day that we began to plant this church, the day that God, the day that God laid this concept in my heart, my deepest desire was to be a part of a church where those three things were incredibly true. That we were authentic, meaning simply that what we were doing was true. Because I've been a part of so many church communities over my life where I was jaded and burned by the idea that what was shown out here was not actually what was really happening back here. And then we would get all dressed up and we would pretty up lives and we would do this and we would fluff all these things up. And then what was happening over here is that it was covering up for a whole bunch of other things. And there was just a lot of inauthenticity in people and words and leadership and part of my DNA. And that's not the whole church and not guilty of every church, but just part of my church experience was really inauthenticity on part of Christians, Right? People that would say one thing and live something else and proclaim and stand on this political soapbox but stay away from this one. And I just hated the inauthenticity. And I felt like the world was looking at the church saying, you are hypocritical. And they were right. And so I always dreamed of being a part of a church that was authentic. I didn't really know what that word meant. I just really knew that I wanted whatever the church said to be who they were. I wanted to be this picture of authenticity. If it was broken, then let it be broken, right? If it was flawed, then let it be flawed. If it needed grace, then let it need grace. But don't pretend that we're made up of perfect things and then sweep everything else under the rug. So I wanted this picture of authenticity. I wanted this idea of loving much and loving well. In fact, that's kind of ingrained into our mission statement because it was part of my first deep DNA, right, is that I wanted to be a part of a church that loved much and well. And those of you who have gone through our new member class, you know I talk a lot about those two things, and really loving much is abundance, and loving well is intention. 
I want to be a part of a church that just loves sort of in this ridiculously abundantly, kind of abundant way. Doesn't ask a lot of questions at first, just says you are welcome here, we love you, we care about you, we fight for the marginalized, the oppressed, we care about things that matter to the heartbeat of God. And I want to be about a part of a church that loves well, and that sort of has this idea of intention. Loving is hard, man. It's not easy. It's hard to love the people in your life. It's hard to love people in the church. It's hard to continually give and give and give. And so it takes us saying, God, I want to love with deep intention. I don't just want to just kind of throw these words around and love a whole lot. I want to love with the intention of seeing people come to know Christ. Like I want my love to matter with a gospel emphasis. So all those things, which are my not-so-secret heartbeat, are important because if you were ever to sit me down and say, Trev, what is the Micah Community Church about? I would say, well, of course, we have our values, right? We're gospel-centered, we're worship-driven, we're community-minded, we're missionally focused. We have this sort of approach to life, which is love God, love people, follow Jesus. We have a mission statement, we exist to love much and love well. We take the gospel to the one, the city, the world. We have all of those things. But if you were to sit me down and say, what is your deepest desire for the church? I would just say that we would be authentic and that we would love much and well. And I don't really have a complete plan on what that looks like, right? I'm not driven by deep aspirational goals for massive church growth or size or program or development or buildings or all of those things. My deepest, deepest, deepest desire is that when someone encountered our community, they would say, well, they're authentic, <laughs> you know? They love, um, they may not know how to do everything else well, right? But we do those things well. And I could rest in that. Because of the things I long for in my own Christian heart is I long to be a part of a community that's authentic and that loves well and loves with intention. I say all that because I want you to understand why these verses are so incredibly important to us as followers of Christ and to us as, in terms of the part of the church that you go to. Because we haven't figured all this out really well yet, as if you haven't figured, you know, I've been here long enough to know that we haven't put all those pieces in place. So if you're here this morning and you're kind of going, man, you know, that kind of resonates with me. I'm glad I found that church. Well, here's the deal. Breathe that breath back in because we don't know how to do it. We don't, but we want to because you probably drove by about a dozen or two dozen or three dozen better churches before you got to this one this morning. Better music, better teaching, better program, better whatever, better whatever. But if you're here for any period of time or you come back I'm guessing that your heart may somehow be revolving around some of those things that I'm saying because they come out in the way that we teach and the way that we think. So if that's you and you sort of might want to be a part of something like that, then these verses are going to be really important to you this morning because they're really important to me. So about five years ago, I had a guy come down after church as I was finishing teaching and he said, hey, I've got a really silly question and I'm just going to ask it and don't laugh at me. And I said, can't promise that. No, I said, okay, of course, of course. And he said, where, I, I know we're called Divine Community Church on that, but where do, what does that even mean? What do we get our name? And I said, it's not a crazy question at all. It's actually really important because names matter. They actually matter a whole lot in scripture. And the name of our community matters a whole lot to us. And so this morning, what I'm going to demonstrate and show you is how all of this comes out of this incredibly important text. Both your identity as a follower of Christ, my identity as a follower of Christ, and our collective identity as a community is actually rooted in these words that Jesus is saying, which are rooted in the gospel themselves. So I want to look at these verses through the lens of those ideas. 
Now, Jesus has left the upper room. He's walking with the disciples. And as he's walking with them, you have to imagine and get yourself out of sort of this urban context that we're in and put yourself in this agrarian culture that the disciples and Jesus would have been in. Of course, everything there 2,000 years ago was very much driven by the agriculture and the economy of agriculture. And they are walking from the upper, upper room through the Kidron Valley, which is actually not that far, and it's not that deep of a valley, but it's a valley nonetheless, and they would have walked up to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they would have passed vineyards. They would have walked by them. And so as Jesus is walking with them, having left the upper room, making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he begins to talk in an imagery about vine and vineyards that he probably was pointing to, or that they may have even been walking right through. So the imagery was incredibly relevant in those days. Lost a little bit on us, but incredibly relevant. And he says, look, I am the true vine. And my father, right, is the gardener or the vine dresser. And Jesus goes on in those few verses to sort of explain the relationship, right? That the the gardener comes in and cuts off branches that aren't bearing fruit. And he prunes those back that are, right, so that they will be even more fruitful. And he says, if you remain in me, right, you can, can I remain in you, you can bear fruit because you can't bear fruit by itself, but you must remain in the vine. He kind of lays this picture out, and he, it's kind of a shot at Israel. If you kind of understand your Old Testament history a little bit, God in the Old Testament is often referred to as a gardener, and Psalm 80 and several others refer to Israel as the vine, as what God is tending and has planted himself and is pruning to show and demonstrate his love to the entire world. And Psalm 80 is very clear in the sort of picture of the vine needing to give life and being pruned and kind of taken care of by the one that planted it, by the gardener, by the father. And so Jesus makes a few comments essentially saying that bring us to the place where he is actually the fulfillment of Israel. Israel has sort of fallen off and though they were grafted to the vine, they've not really bared fruit. And so the Father is going to prune them off or cut them off, and the ones that are bearing fruit, the ones that are in me, he's going to even cut back, right? Which is a painful process of sort of sanctification, this whole thing. And he gets into this thing essentially saying that Jesus is now the true vine. So he is the Messiah that has come out of the line of David, the promised Messiah that would come for Israel. Israel was the vine. Jesus is the true vine in which all life is in him. Now, I just want you to hang on to that because I really want to spend our time in the next verses. But Jesus has made a proclamation, right, that the true vine is actually a person, that the Messiah is the one that was sent by God, that Israel, right, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's love relationship with Israel, and that we are all going to be grafted into this thing. It's sort of the gospel picture. Now, keep that in the back of your mind because I want to spend our time in John 15, 5, and that's going to give some effort to it, some light to it. Then he looks at him and he says, I am the vine. He had just said, I am the true vine. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if you remember in our Gospel of John study, there's a whole handful of I am statements that Jesus makes. I am the light of the world, right? I am the resurrection of life. I am the way. I am the truth of life. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the vine. This is the last of those I am statements that Jesus makes, these declarations And he says, I am the vine. In other words, I am the one that the gardener has planted that is going to bring life to the world. They're walking through there and he says to the disciples, I am the true vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. 
If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what we see in these contexts is there, is that there are a lot of specific things that have, the, have sort of the nature of the vine in them that we need to understand. And Jesus alludes to a couple of them, and he says a couple of them very, very clearly. And I want to work through them for you this morning because our identity as followers of Christ, the disciples' identity, and our identity as a community has tied to the truths about who the vine really is. Because this incredibly important text about what it means to truly be in and have life in Christ. So Jesus says first, I am the vine. And in me, you have life, and essentially, without me, you don't. The thing we have to remember first about the true vine is it is the source for all life. The vine gives life. Now, this is not that far-fetched at all, because we've been walking through all this text that says Jesus is life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. So the vine actually provides life. So imagine you go to your house, and you take a branch off a tree. You just cut it clean off. That branch literally dies If it's not attached to the trunk of the tree or you take a branch off a vine, that branch literally dies if it's not attached to the vine. We are in a very individualistic culture. We are taught to sort of take care of ourselves, to look out for number one. We are taught that we can survive on our own. The great American dream is that we have the right to happiness, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can be a self-made woman or a self-made man. And there could be no farther reality of truth from the biblical story than that. The biblical story is that without Christ, we do not have life, both the eternal life in heaven and real, abundant, true life on earth. Life comes only through Christ. And what Jesus is telling the disciples is essentially that if you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear fruit. You will have life. Now, these are words of comfort. Remember, the disciples, man, they are, are distraught. They don't believe that Jesus is really leaving them, and they haven't let their minds got kind of completely wrapped around that. And they are afraid, and they are nervous, and they are anxious about what life looks like without Jesus. And he's actually giving them words of comfort. He's saying, yes, I am leaving. However, I'm not disappearing for good. You may not see me or be able to physically touch me, but I will remain in you and you will remain in me and in that you will have life. I don't know about you, but a lot of us have spent a lot of time trying to chase life apart from Jesus. We've tried to fill our lives with a whole lot of other things. Academics, scholarly pursuits, relationships, right? Sex, all kinds of garbage, work, money, finance, whatever you want to do, we've tried to shove a whole lot of things into our life, and every single time it comes up empty. None of those things lead to abundant real life. These are not new things, right? Things we've talked about. The only access we have to true, real, abundant life is when we are connected to the life-giving vine, where the life of the vine pulses through us. Most of us have made our Christian experience one of just getting by, a life of sort of some untamed mediocrity, where we go to church enough or we spend enough time with the Lord to just sort of feel like we've got some kind of idea of hope. But the reality is our lives are sort of driven by going through the motions. We wake up, go to work, go to school, interact with people, 
come home frustrated about how things aren't either going at home or how they're not going in our checkbook, wrap things up, watch Fallon, go to bed. And our lives are sort of the existence of that, right? But it's not how we're really created to live. We were created to live, as John 10.10 says, we explored several, several chapters ago, that we were created to have abundant life here on earth. Eternal life doesn't begin when we die. Eternal life begins the moment you surrender your life to Jesus and we draw breath in him. The life you were created to live happens now. The vine is the giver of true life, true meaning. Jesus, that means that Jesus gives meaning to relationships. Jesus gives meaning to love. Jesus gives meaning to serving. Jesus gives meaning to work. Jesus gives meaning to relationships with your parents or your children. Jesus adds depth and life to everything that we do. Because the vine gives life. We also know the vine connects. At the beginning of that, he says, I am the true vine. Now, if you think about this imagery for a minute, and you think about you've got this vine here or this tree trunk, if you will, and off that tree trunk are a zillion branches. And every one of those branches is incredibly different, right? They're made different. They look different. They got different offshoots. They grow different amounts of leaves, and they bear different sizes of fruit and all those kind of things. Because every branch is different. But the one thing that every single one of those branches has in common is that they are connected to a singular vine that gives them all life. One of the things we fail to remember about Jesus as the true vine, as this thing that we're connected with, is that we are now connected because of Jesus to other believers that are connected to Jesus, that we have that in common with them. But we spend the majority of our time as followers of Christ arguing or fighting over all the differences we have between the Baptists and the Methodists or the Live Church people or the non-Live Church people or the, you know, the Lutherans or the Episcopalians or the whatever we are, all those things, Right? All the differences. Well, they dance, or they don't dance, or they sing, or they don't use instruments, they do use instruments, they use this word, they use that word. And we've got to find the niche that fits my perfect identity, and then I don't know what to do with all those churches up the street. You know, it's really a Western problem more than anything when it comes to evangelical Christianity. I've been all over the world, 30-something countries, and I've met believers in every one of those countries. And never, not once, has anyone ever asked me what denomination I belong to when I'm traveling and I'm seeing believers in those other places. I tell the story all the time because it's just a great example of this. But when we were in China, um, I was on the, getting on the subway, and I, I'm a huge man in China, like <laughs> huge. I mean, I was actually asked in an English class we were teaching one time, if, and, and then his broken English, excuse me, sir, are you a giant from your country? And I was like, I'm super offended. <laughs> no. Well, maybe. I don't know. It's a weird question. Shh. Let's talk about trousers. That's a weird pants, shirts. The book is red, right? We don't even ask me if I'm a giant. So anyway, I stand out like a sore thumb. We rode the subways everywhere we went. I get on a subway and I'm pressed with people, but I'm literally, I can see the back and I can see the front. I got people's heads in my armpits, all this kind of thing. So the, in China, right, we were in like the 19th largest city in the world that you've never heard of. It's like 20 million people. And uh, we were pressed into the subway and it was just this giant exchange of people. And we were taught and told that we were there, of course, don't identify yourself as a believer, you know, because depending on where you are in China, it has various varying levels 
of its uh, sort of a legal nature to it. And as you closer you get to some of the more progressive areas and the borders, the more open it is, the more you get into the center and less open it is. So we're always taught just to be really careful not to proclaim that you're a believer or why you're there or all that, but the church is operating underground and in secret, and we were a part of that, and it was pretty, pretty amazing. Long, the short story of all this is I was getting on the subway, and I was standing in my little backpack surrounded by a whole lot of people that were touching me, and I get out, and as this guy, I'm getting on the subway, as I'm coming out, this guy locks eyes with me, right? This just looking right at me. And this is pretty odd because and if you've ever been to other countries, they don't, people don't look each other in the eye a lot, right? It's, that's a, sort of a, a much more Western thing. But, but he locks eyes with me, and he's a, a Chinese national. He's coming off, and he looks at me, and we're staring at each other, and it's like a game of chicken eyes, and I don't want to look away first because we're looking at each other, and he's looking at me. It's actually a game you can play. You can look it up, chicken eyes. And uh, we're looking at each other, and uh, he comes right to where I am, and we're surrounded by all these people. And he looks at me, and he says, are, are you a believer? And he says it in English. Are you a believer? And I had this crazy moment where I was like, I'm not supposed to say I'm a believer. What if I say, yeah, and he like hits me and drags me off to jail. Like, I didn't know what happens, right? And so I was, of course, like, uh, yes. And he just takes these arms and he just throws them around me. And he says, brother. And he hugs me in this sort of lingering Chinese subway hug, right? <laughs> Hold me. And uh, a little too long, but it was still, it was good. I, know we were do- I knew what we were doing. <laughs> and then he just gets off, stops, and he just walks away. He didn't look at me and be like, hey, you know, where do you guys go to church? Or what do you do? Or are you a Baptist? Or what do you believe about uh, eschatology? Or what's your thought on the premillennial, postmillennial trib ideas? All this kind of, say anything about that. He just saw and asked me as a believer and said, brother, now, of course, the reality is, is that those theology and things like that matter. They really do matter. But in the scheme of things, I wonder at what level they matter. But what we have to understand with the vine is that Jesus connects us. Brandon and I make this joke all the time that we would not be friends without Jesus. I mean, we are so different, so different. He can tell you all the ways. But the reality is, if it weren't for Jesus, like, we just wouldn't have connected ever. Jesus connects us. It's what he's brought every one of us into this place for. I know that you've got a crazy background. That's probably why you're here. I know you're disenchanted with whatever church you went to. You know, all the time we hear the stories. Well, you know, I left this church for that because they didn't do this, or I left this church for that. So I'm like, great, we get everybody else's. Like, I didn't want to be where I was, so I came here. It's awesome, right? Since we're all this hot sort of mess of people, but we're connected through this common desire to know Jesus and the fact that his life pulses through each of us. So we're connected by the vine. The vine is this sort of life-giving, connecting thing. The other thing he says in there about the vine that's really important that Jesus talks about is he essentially says, he says, you can do nothing on your own. If you don't remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withered. Such branches are picked up and they're thrown into the fire and and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask what you wish and it will be given to you. But if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The vine, Jesus, allows us, you and I, to bear fruit. Now, it seems really simple on the outside, but I want you to understand the complexity of this verse, which is you cannot bear fruit on your own, period. What's the most important part of a fruit-bearing plant? Well, it's the fruit. Nobody wants an apple tree that doesn't give apples. Nobody wants a grapevine that doesn't give grapes. Nobody wants a cantaloupe 
vine or tree that gives no cantaloupes. Shouldn't have gone to cantaloupes. I don't know how they grow. But I'm assuming they're attached to something that makes them grow. Nobody wants that, right? Because the value of a fruit-bearing plant is what it produces. You were created to have a relationship with the Father that would allow fruit to be produced in your life that would give glory to the producer of the fruit, not to the branch. This is a great apple tree. Why? Because the apple gives, gives life, right? Not the branch on its own. You cannot bear fruit on your own. Apart from the vine taken off, you wither up, you fall to the ground, and the gardener comes by, and he scoops up that branch, and he throws it in the fire and burns it because it's worthless if it's not attached to the life-giving vine. But if it is attached to the vine, it will bear fruit, not because the, vine, the branch did anything. Because the branch simply attached itself to the life-giving source. You can do nothing to produce fruit on your own. And the fruit we're talking about are not just the fruit of the Spirit, but the evidence of a life that follows Christ. You can't manufacture that. You can't pretty it up enough. But our churches are filled, well, basically our churches are filled with people in our churches are places a lot of times where we try and doctor up the fruit to make it look like we're doing something really great. But at the end of the day, it's plastic fruit on a dead branch. So growing up, we had this Christmas tree that we used for probably 22 years. It was a piece. We kept it in a box in the garage, and my brother and I would throw baseballs at the box. Um, I don't know why, but we always did. And they would break through the box, and the tree was just year after year just smashed to smithereens. I mean, you would pull it out. The branches were everywhere. It was fake snow on it. For some reason, we lived in Austin, Texas, like it ever snowed on your Christmas tree in your house. But it had snow on the branches. Every year we'd pick it out. My mom would go through the, she would scoop up all these old metal branches. And I think it was like one of those things where they bought it right before we were born. They spent a whole lot of money on it. So that meant they never could replace it. And so every year we would put it out. It came in two pieces and it looked, I mean, it was a disaster, right? And we always would go, oh, can we please? My dad was like, we're not buying a new tree. A tree's good. My mom was like, a tree ain't good. But I was like, tree's fine. So my mom would spend Two days prior to the big decorating day, reassembling this nightmare. And she would duct tape the things to the branches to the inside. There were zip ties in there that wouldn't come off from years past. There was all kinds of stuff. We had tried super gluing these branches in there. Those metal branches, right? Most of the snow had fallen off, so each year we'd wrap some cotton on there or whatever it was. And by the end of the day, and all our decorating, whatever, we'd put these colored lights on it, and we'd hang, you know, whatever popsicle stick fort I made with happy Christmas on it or whatever, hanging from there, it resembled something like a Christmas tree. And we loved it, but we'd look at it, and everybody knew when they saw it that this wasn't a real tree. I mean, it was the farthest thing from a real tree. And if you got close enough, you literally could see duct tape and garbage and stuff and cotton tied to this thing. The reality is, is that I think a lot of our lives, we've done that to a lot of our lives. We so want to live in a way that looks well and good and acceptable to the outside world that we walk into our churches and we've doctored up our lives enough. And I'm just talking about the stuff that we wear, but I'm talking about the words that we say and the cliches that we use and the sort of picture that we paste on the outside, right? That just basically says, please don't look too deep because I have no idea if I even believe that God is real. But I don't know how to ask that question, and so I'm going to doctor my life up 
to make it look like I'm floating this sort of Christian thing because I don't have a safe place to exist. And for me, that's the definition of inauthenticity. Because the church hasn't provided people a safe place to go, I am absolutely broken. Like, I have no idea what I'm even doing. I'm 32, I'm not married, my mom's mad at me about that. Like, I don't have the job I wanted to. In fact, I'm not even really working. Our lives are sort of barely held together, tied together by credit cards. My, my, my family is falling apart. I've got a son that won't do this. My wife and his marriage is a mess. Like, this whole thing is sort of held together, and I just try and cover it up because I'm petrified of actually existing in a place where people get to know that because I look next to me and everybody else has sort of got it together. And so when I first started thinking about the church that I thought was unfolding in Scripture and that I longed to be a part of, it would understand that, that anything other than truly attached to Jesus Christ is just a lie. And I never wanted to be a part of a church that was a lie. And so I started by saying in my heart, Lord, I want to be a part of something that only has anything because of you, period. I don't want to manufacture it. I don't want it to make, I don't want to make it look great. I don't want people to walk in and think they're at a banana republic or whatever because the church is so awesome. So our things are a little exposed and we have cheaper chairs and we have things that aren't perfect. But my prayer has always been that as people, that we would be a testimony to the grace and the glory of God alone. We haven't done it perfectly, but we long for it. The vine gives life. The vine connects us. And the vine, Jesus, allows us to bear any fruit at all, which means if you see anything in the life of people or in this community that resembles anything good at all, it's because of Jesus. We cannot manufacture it. Nobody can. Anything good comes from God alone. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And those words are really, really important for your own life in Christ. If you are trying to fix your life, if you are trying to adjust your life enough to make it spiritually presentable, if you are trying to just quit doing this or stop thinking that or just wanting this to go away, you cannot do anything on your own. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So our process begins saying, Jesus, before I address all the duct tape on my branches and fake snow and all this, before I address any of that, I just want to make sure that my heart is connected with yours because I have no life aside from you. The vine, as a community, right, you can see where my mind was going and how we ended up here, and as my own relationship with Christ, is nothing apart from Jesus, period. He gives life. He connects me to every other relationship that matters in my life, in my world. And he allows me and he allows you to bear fruit. And apart from him, we literally can do nothing. So if you're operating in this world where you're trying to do this on your own or trying to fix your life or trying to rectify your life or trying to work your way out of whatever, just stop and breathe and say, Jesus, am I first and foremost connected to you? How's my relationship with the only one that gives life, the only one that can remedy all of that? And Jesus ends by saying this, if you are connected with me, right, if you are in me, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask what you wish and it will be given to you. This is for the Father's glory. Now, this doesn't mean like we talked about several weeks ago that we can ask for a bunch of gold to fall on the stage. It's all this accordance with God's will stuff that we talked about weeks ago. You can listen to that message. But the idea is the same. 
if we remain in Jesus and his truth and his words remain in us, right, the logos remain in us, then God the Father, right, we have access to him. And whose glory is it for? What's for the glory of the Father? Not for yours, right? You don't get credit for bearing fruit. The glory always goes to God the Father, which is what I always long for the church. God, I pray that every compliment, every word of encouragement would always be directed back to the one who gives life. That everything we are and have is because of Jesus. To the glory of God the Father alone. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the moments to gather this morning. We thank you, God, that the truth in this text is that we cannot do anything without you. Nothing that matters. Nothing that gives life. Nothing that has fruit to it. And Lord, I'll be honest, it's somewhat petrifying. Because apart from you, we die. And as you tell us in that text, the only thing at that point in time we're good for is to be gathered up and thrown into the fire. So Lord, I pray that we would be people that are attached to the only source of life, the true vine. That we would understand the way that we are connected not only to the Son, to the Father, but to each other through Jesus. And that in you we produce real fruit. We don't have to manufacture it. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to walk around trying to trick the world into thinking we have it all together. Lord, if we are truly connected with you, we will bear fruit that demonstrates your goodness and your glory. And you alone get the glory for that. So Lord, help us be a church and individuals that fight for authenticity. That fight to love much and to love well. Only and always for your glory. As we close our time in worship, let's stand together and sing and worship the God who has given us true life in Jesus Christ.